Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Oh. oh, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, welcome to Pantasocracy 2018. It's a new year, a new day, and unfortunately, a new waistline. The blame for which I entirely lay at the feet of Mammy Bliss's mince pies. But now, while outside it may be all dark winter days and looming Brexits and leering trumps in the studio today, I am determined to get the year started on an optimistic and hopeful note. So I have gathered together a group of interesting and talented people, they're not bad looking either, um, here at the Patisocracy Parlour to throw open a sort of metaphorical window on the new year. So with me is an elegant woman of um, ideals and passion. She's a Syrian who came to Ireland as a student before the war and who now volunteers to help war refugees. Please welcome Razan Ibrahim. I told you they were good looking. Next, uh, we have a stunning fella, appropriately enough, because he is the frontman of the band The Stunning. And in his other guise as an actor, he'll soon be playing jazz trumpeter Chet Baker on film. Please welcome Steve Wall. And then we have a small woman with big ambitions and courage. She's a Paralympian athlete. She's from Cork, although I have graciously decided not to hold that against her. <laughs> She's a champion discus thrower, and in her spare time, she loves nothing more than throwing herself out of airplanes. Please welcome Neve McCarthy. Uh, then we have a musician and singer. She's part of the incredibly talented Black family. Mum is Frances Black, right? And Auntie Mary is, well, yeah. Auntie Mary Black. She is. Right, yes. Um, and uh, she herself these days is back and forth in the US, gigging very regularly. So please welcome Eva Scott. Thank you very much. And finalement, as they might say in French-speaking parts of Belgium, mm -hmm. we have another singer and musician from another famous musical family, because um, his brother is well known as Christy Moore. He's come up from Clare, where he's living and working these days, to help our little soiree along. He needs no introduction, but I'll do it anyway, sure. It's Luca Bloom. Thank you, very much. Thank you. But now, before we get to our attractive and intimidatingly talented guests, <laughs> I get to muse first um, aloud about the new year and new beginnings and what it means to begin again. I spent New Year's Eve 1994 in a Tokyo nightclub in a silver dress with white feathered accents. <laughs> At the time, I was part of a double act called Candy Panty. How I got my ridiculous name is a whole other story for another day. But anyway, in our matching stage frocks, Candy and I rang in the new year with a few hundred of Tokyo's least likely citizens and um, before rounding things off with, if memory serves, um, an ABBA medley. <laughs> now, a friend of mine, a keen photographer, was visiting me at the time from Ireland, and um, a couple of hours later, as the sun was beginning to illuminate 1995 for the very first time, Candy and I were drunkenly rolling around the floor of her apartment, screaming, laughing, and throwing shapes for my friend's camera. And so far, 1995 was the best year ever. <laughs> but as we gigglingly bent ourselves into another ridiculous pose, the room began to shake. Now, for a moment, upside down on Candy's floor, while she attempted unsuccessfully to do the crap, I didn't quite notice that the room had started to wobble. But when the earth below shook out its muscle with a first violent jerk, there was no mistaking it. And even if I had, the look on my suddenly very sober Irish friend's face as he realised he was experiencing his first earthquake was enough to spell it out. Now, this wasn't my first earthquake. I had already lived in quake-prone Tokyo long enough, so I knew exactly what to do. I even had my earthquake survival kit 
somewhere in my apartment across the hall. And I knew that at some point later that day, uh, assuming we weren't all crushed to death in the next few minutes by Candy's Hello Kitty collection falling on top of us, our sweet old landlady who lived on the ground floor, Mrs. Asakawa, would ask me, did I do all the things that I knew that I was supposed to do? But I figured I'd just have to lie to her. Because I didn't grab my ashen-faced Irish friend and my drunk drag queen partner and shove them into a doorway or under the kitchen table as I was meant to. Because I knew that this was not the big one. No, the big one was not going to come and ruin this perfect new morning. Nothing could. I was 26 years old, in a silver dress with white feathered accents, drunk and happy tired on a floor in Tokyo with two of my best friends, five hours into a brand new year. So far, the best year ever. And I just knew, as clearly as I knew anything, that this moment was not going to kill me. This wasn't the end of my story. It wasn't the end of any story. It wasn't any kind of ending. This was the beginning of a story. Now, I didn't know what that story was, um, but I was excited to find out because I figured that any story that begins with two drunk drag queens and a handsome Irish photographer on a floor in Tokyo was bound to be a good story. <laughs> no. This was not the big one. This was just the earth shaking everything out so we could start afresh, so we could begin again, shaking things up, shaking things out, shaking things off, shaking me awake. So I just lay there on my back, arms spread out, palms pressed into the floor, feeling the earth sway and jump beneath me, laughing and excited, eyes squeezed shut, looking forward. Now my snow globe was getting a good shake, and I couldn't wait to see where the glittering snow would settle. Now, Steve, I'm going to come to you first. I have to lay all of my wall cards on the table first here because, um, shockingly, this morning, thinking about it, I realised I've known Steve for about 30 years because Steve's sister, Helen, is one of my oldest friends and Helen and I went to Tokyo together. And that silver dress with white feathered accents was made by the lovely hands of your sister. Wow, I didn't know And that. indeed, it was in a Tokyo nightclub that I hit on this big, handsome man who then told me he was straight, and I thought he is too handsome and too hot to let this go to waste. So I introduced him to my friend Helen, and 30 years later, they've been married a long time. They have, you know, beautiful, Three handsome boys. boys. Yeah. Um, it's all worked out beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a long history here with Steve. Now, kind of our theme today is with, it's about sort of new beginnings. And you've had a lot of them. The first being, you were actually intending to be an actor first, and then the music came along and sort of changed everything. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think... When I was a kid in in Estimon, I remember seeing Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean, and that just blew me away. There was yeah. just something about him, and I just was kind of obsessed with that whole thing. And it's one of those films when you're of a certain age as well. It's that sort of disenchanted youth and all that, yeah. and it really resounded with me. So after that, I became kind of fascinated with films and everything, and you know, wanted to become an actor. There wasn't much in Estimon, mm. but then actually, I ended up doing um, a two man play down there with a, an American woman that had moved into the area. The glamour. So at all, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but then how did how did the music thing come along? If you were all set to be an actor, yeah. Well, I went to college in Galway, and I went to see a lunchtime concert that was a kind of this punk new wave band called New Testament. They were brilliant, and I went to see them play a couple of times, and then I kind of suggested that they needed an extra guitar player, and uh, so I was taken on. Then, after about a couple of years of that, we disbanded. And uh, I walked off the street one day into the Druid Theatre Company and I asked for a job. 
and uh, like I had no experience. I had no sort of piece prepared or anything like that. Yeah. I ended up being a kind of gopher assistant, sound operator, and I had get some walk-on parts and understudy work. So I was there for a couple of years doing that kind of thing. Now, Luca, I feel like a little connection to your right. little begin again thing. Cool. Because, of course, you left your yeah. old name behind yeah. and took on another one, Luca Bloom, yeah. you know, which in a way is kind of what I did. Um, yeah. What prompted that? Well, what prompted it was that the desperation is the mother of invention. Yeah. And, you know, around about 1981 or 82, I'd been playing for about professionally for five or six years. I'd made three albums that probably sold in total between all three, about three or four hundred copies and it was pretty clear that things were a big number these days things weren't <laughs> yeah, things weren't going well and i made this decision that i wanted to go to america and i had this real sense of wanting to just begin again mm. you see they say you only get one shot at making a debut album but because nobody knew anything about me in america i could have a second crack at the whip at making a debut yeah, album yeah. <laughs> and sting had just left the police and he was doing these gigs as Sting. And I remember, wow, that's a pretty cool thing for him to do. You know, he was just going out as Sting as opposed to going out as a member of the police. That's mm. what you were going to say there. The, the police were looking for a new singer. Oh, well, <laughs> they missed out on that. But uh, <laughs> bless them. So anyway, I spent about six months with a girlfriend at the time researching possibilities for names. And people have this idea about taking on a name like this or why would you want to conceal yourself? And I remember reading one day in a theatre, there was an exhibition of mask theatre and on the door there was this comment about mask theatre that the whole purpose of the mask is not so that you want to conceal anything it's so that you can reveal everything and I couldn't have expected this but as a result of taking on this stage name it freed up something in me when I became a little bit less shy about going on stage and singing for people. I absolutely get that because you know that's what I did you know. Fair play to you. Now, one of the things that I had sort of lazily assumed for years that Luca maybe changed his name to sort of disassociate himself from his family connections. And now... um, It's a a funny one because I actually get asked in America uh, because my second name is Scott. Yes. Why don't I change my name to Black? Well... I kind of go, well, that's not my name. So my name is Eva Scott. And for me, I, people have asked me, would I not have a stage name? And I think it, I came late to sing and I actually mm. did begin again in myself. I had a totally different career because I had a huge chip on my shoulder about who I was mm. and who my family was. And I was living in fear. I didn't want to even step up to the plate because I was like, they're all going to compare me. Because even... Oh, right. Yeah, you felt you had to be that standard from yeah, day like one. Yeah, if I tried and I didn't, it didn't work, that I'd be seen as a failure within seconds because everybody else in my family are unbelievably amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was kind of coming late. Well, I suppose I was just hitting 30 when I decided I was going to give up my job and go singing. And it was a big decision for me to make, but... I just decided I would go under my own name and and I suppose I have my own identity in that sense because I don't have black written in there but at the same Mm -hmm. time everybody knows because I sound very similar to them. Uh, (laughs) Genetically it's kind of difficult to change my voice. I I would have to work really hard to change it and uh, it's a powerful thing to to go deep within yourself and to find out what you really want to do and to do it even though it's the scariest thing possible. But uh, that's (laughs) why I'm here today. Now Razan, in some ways yours is the most obvious begin again story but you didn't come to Ireland to escape the war because it was before the war, you came to Ireland because you got into Beckett and Joyce and you thought you were going to come along here and we'd all be chatting about, you know, Beckett on the bus, <laughs> you know, and, 
And, and so it must have been a question disappointment when you came here and found out that none of us have read Ulysses either. You know, like, you know, so how did that come about? Uh, when I was back home in Syria, I did the, the, my undergraduate yeah. in English and Irish literature. So that's why I was exposed to Ireland and Irish literature and Irish history. And I was fascinated. And when I finished, I, I really wanted to do masters and finish my studies in English language teaching. And I couldn't afford it. I had only one euro in my pocket. And what year was this? That was in 2001. Okay. Actually, I worked 10 years saving money. And I went to Kuwait and I worked five years as well. And I saved money. And then finally, I got almost the 10,000 euros. Mm. I applied here and I came to do my master's and go back home because I had already my idea of a new business of opening a language school. Yeah. But war escalated and I couldn't go back home. And I then I started to think how to begin again yeah. my life here. But it was very challenging. And actually, I found I, I worked as English teacher in Ireland, teaching international students. Yeah. And then I got opportunity to manage a language school okay. in Limerick. So, yeah, it was challenging to begin again, but at the same time, there is no other choice. Mm. So it was really important to face all my challenges and overcome them yeah. and really be myself. Well, sometimes I think people choose change and sometimes change is sort of thrust upon them. Exactly. Now, yours is somewhere in the middle here <laughs> because uh, you weren't sporty. And so the idea that you were going to end up as a, you know, an Olympian and a discus thrower of all things, you know, is a nutty idea. <laughs> so how did that come about? Yeah, like like you said, I had absolutely no interest in sport. To this day, to be fair, as people tell me about the match, and I'm like, oh, what sport? What match? Like, But uh, it was when I was 18 and I was in college and everything. And like you mentioned earlier, I was involved in skydiving. So that was probably the only sporty thing I was really involved with. But um, yeah, I just met someone this one day. I was just dropping a letter off to a friend of my mother's and um, I hand the letter over and he's just like, oh, you know, uh, what condition have you got? And I'm just like, excuse me? You know, yes, for our <laughs> listeners, I just want to go, you're a little person. Yes, yes, I'm four foot four. Mm. So he asked me this and I'm you know, highly offended, but I found out he had a son with achondroplasia. So I was like, okay. So sorry, what? plasia. So that's like the most typical form of dwarfism. It's okay. not what I have, but it's kind of something similar. Yeah. So I was kind of like, yeah, you know, fair enough. And he's saying like, oh, you know, would she be interested in disability sport? anything like that and like no is the answer <laughs> absolutely wanted nothing to do with it well, why didn't because you didn't see yourself as disabled or you just weren't interested in sport both I yeah. never considered myself disabled yeah. to this day I still don't yeah. like the only thing out of my reach is literally top shelf and like <laughs> a few rides in Disneyland that won't let me on like you know that was you know but uh, so I didn't see how I'd fit in at all but uh, Paralympics Ireland were holding this talent search after the London Games and I was invited up and yeah, like I was just handed this disc thrown against the wall. I met all these famous people with medals and I'm like, yeah, you know, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, thought nothing of it. And within a few weeks, you know, I got an email saying they want to test me and classify me. And I went up to Dublin, I did a warm up and literally within a few weeks then I get another email saying, oh, you're, you're on the development panel now. And yeah, I mean, it's an opportunity I, I decided to go for. Well, that's, uh, you know, the best attitude, give everything a go. OK, yeah. well, let's um, have a little music before we get into more things. I think we want to start with you, Steve. Do you want to tell us what you're going to do for us? I'm going to do this song that I wrote probably about a year ago or so, or maybe a little over that. 
And um, it's quite self-explanatory. It's dedicated to couples everywhere. <laughs> You'll know what it's about in the lyrics. It's called Mama's Going Back to Bed. <laughs> Tonight you're a haunted house As the moon hides behind the clouds I'm here, you're there Can't settle down anywhere Too high up, you can't get down Cause your feet never touch the ground Pure bread, enough said Now mama's going back to bed Now mama's going back to bed I want something I can hate about you But you did nothing wrong and you haven't got a clue You're good, so good You read the lines just as you should God knows it's not happening here I'll take a chance on a volunteer You do, who knew That you could buy love with an I.O.U. Now mama's going back to bed Mama's going back to bed Don't ask me where I was last night No point in trying to read my mind Like hide and seek It's a card psychology Do I need permission to speak? I'm in my own house, not in the back seat Pure bread, enough said Now Mama's going back to bed Now daddy's going back to bed Now daddy's going back to Get near, we steer clear You'll never start a revolution here We can still make it beautiful I'm the easy rider, you're the raging bull No ifs, no buts Take a chance, it might change our look Break bread, breastfed Now mama's going back to bed Looking hot, one shot Now mama's going back to bed Fire, live wire. Was going back to back to bed. Thank you. Eva, I want to come to you. Um, it's actually I want to ask you first about this sort of musical family business because sometimes I look at people like you and I'm just mad jealous because I don't come from a musical family. But then on the other hand, I think is there a curse because you all end up being musicians. <laughs> um, and you know, it's not the easiest way to make a living, is it? You know, like do you sometimes wish, God, I, I wish more, you know, everybody in the family had been an accountant? No, no. <laughs> Cause like I think I when I grew up, I it was the opposite. I was like really deciding, I was like, I'm not gonna be a musician. 
I mean, I saw how hard my mom had to work actually when mm. I was growing up. And being a musician, it's up and down all the time. And, and my mom was very, really successful when she had like number one albums in Ireland. And even still, I saw how hard she had to work. Yeah. And I was just like, that's too hard. Like, I don't mm. think I want to do that. But yeah. I think it, it is a blessing, definitely a blessing to mm. come from a musical family. I mean, in our family, as sessions and stuff like that, everybody would have to sing a song, according yeah. to my granny. My granny was the one with the stick and she was a very formidable lady, but she was the reason why the black family could sing because she had the passion. Your granny was from the Liberties? Or? Yeah, my granny was from the Liberties, yeah. Yeah, because you have a connection to Rathlin Island. Yes, too. my granddad, she married my granddad who uh, was from Rathlin Island, yeah. Okay. But they moved to Charlemont Street and that's where the shop was. My granny had a shop. But then she moved back to the Liberties then and we bought a house next door to her. So she was kind of our main carer when my yeah. mother went away. We also swapped houses with Mary when my Mary was away. My mom would mind her kids and when my mom was away, she'd mind us. I want my auntie to be Mary Black. <laughs> my mother's from the Liberties as well. Is she, yeah. yeah. They had a shop. Did they, yeah. yeah. yeah Everybody in Liberties has a shop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and bizarrely, we had a shop on the main street in Newbridge. Did you? We had a grocery shop on yeah. the main street in Newbridge. Yeah. And then when we moved down to uh, where my father's from in a Diamond County Clare, we took over the family shoe shop. Yes, yes. <laughs> but actually, now, see, because you actually spent your, your early childhood in Dublin. Well, actually, yeah. first somewhere else, was it in England? Born in London to Irish parents who met in uh, a dance hall in Cricklewood or Kilburn or somewhere. But, but, and then you moved to Dublin and you were like, you know, your early teenage years, you were like a dub. Yeah. And then your dad says, you know, feck this, we're going to Ennis Diamond. Yeah. My dad. That worked, was an yeah. adjustment, I see. That was that was a bit of shock, all right. I, I didn't want to move myself. I was well settled in in Dublin, and yeah. I just started secondary school. And then uh, the announcement was made that we were moving down to Ennis Diamond to take over the family <laughs> shoe shop. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, what? And, and people nowadays kind of forget that then it was a huge journey to get down to Ennis Diamond. Yeah, it took like seven hours. Yeah. And you were a trendy, or wanting to be a trendy, cool city boy. Yeah, I was really getting into stuff. Like, I remember, um, like, we had multi-channel TV in Dublin, you know, so we could, like, watch <laughs> Top of the Pops and things like that. And when we moved down there, and I'm talking, this was 1976. Mm. Like, there was one channel, one black and white TV yeah. in a little room at the back of the shop. And we lived with our granny, who I always remember, like, she had a, she'd made a little bag that uh, was attached to her chair, and she kept the RT guide in it. That was the Bible coming. And I, why did you need it when there was only one channel? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but that was it. It was it was really odd. It was like going back in time. Yeah, and, and so then if you decided, okay, well, I want to get into the music and all. Now, it's one thing if you're living in this time and, and you want to get into traditional music and, you know, be a fiddle player. Yeah. But it's entirely different if you want to be, uh, you know, a rock musician. Yeah. I was brought up in a house that was full of records and mm. sing songs. And interestingly enough, it wasn't Irish folk songs that were singing. They were much more into the American songbook yeah. and all that. Yeah. So, yeah, when we were down there, I felt like that I'd left that whole world of music. It was it was all gone. And funnily enough, it was the sense of, of that separation that I think made me more tenacious. Mm. I felt that I'd been cut off from all of that. And there was amazing stuff going on in the rest of the world and I was missing it. Yeah. So I used to tune in myself and my brother Joe. Radio Ennis Diamond is in a hollow in the ground. We could never pick up the radio properly. So we had our tranny attached to the central heating pipes. And we could <laughs> we could tune in to Radio Luxembourg. Yeah. And uh, and this is before like Dave Fanning came on with two FM because mm. that was a savior, Dave yeah. the Dave Fanning Rock Show that used to come on at eleven o'clock at night. I remember one night I was like when I was supposed to be asleep and I was listening to Dave Fanning's rock show in bed with the little earbud. 
And he played The Clash's White Man in the Hammersmith Palais and it blew my mind. And I thought, so next bank holiday weekend, I'm going to Dublin, I'm going to get that record. So the bus would come from Lisdoon Varna, stop in Ennis Diamond. It was a seven hour bus journey to Dublin to buy a record. So a record Pete, that, that for all you knew, you weren't even going to like, really. I knew I, mean, I, like, I, knew, I knew I was going to like it. But that's the kind of thing, you know, you saved up and you bought an album and you know, you invested a lot of time mm-hmm. and money into buying a record. So you really had to know what you wanted. Yeah. Now, Luca, I sort of mentioned the family thing and the music and uh, and all that. That's your family too, right? Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah, our mother was a beautiful singer. Oh, I'm the youngest of six. Everybody sings. Interesting thing, Steve is talking about records there. I mm. find that fascinating because, uh, you know, I have a certain nostalgia for this thing of hearing something on the radio, going to somewhere, perhaps having to order it. Yeah. and wait until you get the record. And then when you get the record, you read the sleeve notes, mm-hmm. you want to know everything about the person. Yeah. But I think also there was that thing of waiting. There was something about having to wait for that sort of moment when you put the piece of beautiful music in your yeah. hand and you get it. And the, the trouble you went to to get yeah. records. Yeah. I, I can completely yeah. relate to that. We're talking about a foreign country now, aren't we? Well, it's amazing how powerful all that stuff is. I mean... Razan literally came to this country because of the, you know, the art, you know, that we had put out into the world. And but you, and for example, seeing as this is such a musical thing today, like were you aware at all of Irish your musical traditions? Yeah, I was aware of the traditional music, but not uh, the songs as such. Yeah. But the first day I arrived to Dublin, I did not know any person and. All Ireland, you know, I was literally on my own. The first day I arrived to Dublin airport, I met uh, by accident a singer, Irish singer, that he's popular in the region between Syria and Lebanon, Christy Burke. And he's very popular there. And we listen to his songs, so, uh, Lady in Red, and these ah, like really yeah. popular. And the reason why the lyrics are simple for um, non native speakers, you yes. know, and I never expected ever that I'm going to meet him. When I saw him at the airport, the first day I arrived and I was like, sorry, are you Christy Berg? He said, yeah. Oh my God, you did. You, you literally met him. <laughs> yeah. And I took photo with him. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> and I, it was the proudest photo ever in my life. <laughs> but I think music is a huge part in Irish uh, culture in general, mm. and it is beautiful part. Well, I will always say one fabulous thing about Christy and this is a tip for all of you. Outside of Ireland, nobody knows Patricia the Stripper. And if you're not the greatest singer in the world and you're forced to do a party piece, it is the best thing to do because you don't have to be a brilliant singer because it's a big story. And if you do Patricia the Stripper in a room full of Americans or Austrians or whatever, you know, every time you drink, they will think that you are honestly Brilliant. <laughs> so, so that is a, a tip for all Irish people out there. Learn Patricia the Stripper and have it as your party piece. Um, uh, well, let's actually have some more music. And uh, Luke, I think we're going to... Okay, uh, Yes, cool. you're yeah. going to uh, yeah. entertain us. Yeah, I, I, I sincerely um, hope so. And it's Wayfaring, Wayfaring Stranger is, is the song. 2016 was an interesting year. I wasn't all entirely sorry to see the back of it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of changes in the world towards the latter part of... Uh, between Mr. Trump and yeah. Brexit, etc. Yeah. And I heard this song on the radio, a classic old American song from about 200 years ago. And it was an amazing thing how somehow, even though the song was 200 years old, it felt completely relevant at the end of 2016. And this is a song for all the wayfaring strangers in the world. Okay. Thank you. Yo.
I am a poor wayfaring stranger Traveling through this world of woe There is no sickness, toil or danger In that bright world to which I go I'm going there to see my father I'm going there no more to roam I'm only going over Jordan I'm only going over I know dark clouds will gather round me I know my way is rough and steep Beautiful fields lie before me Where God's redeemed their vigils keep I'm going there to see my mother She said she'll meet me when I come Going over Jordan, I'm only going over home. How did a homeless child with nothing come to be a threat to you? And if your Christ made it to the border, tell me please, what would you do? He only longs to see his father, he longs to see his mother too. They are gone and all he has now, all he has is me and you. I'm going there to see my father I'm going there no more to roam I'm only going over Jordan I'm only going over home I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that album because... Um, refuge. Yes, and basically it all came out of seeing the refugee crisis on the TV. Is that right? There were so many challenges in the world in 2016 that I found myself in a flow of writing about people who were feeling left behind mm. and people who were being made unwelcome. Mm. And uh, I think all my life, whenever I feel sad, uh, some people find refuge in drugs or alcohol, which I've done myself in the past, but I, all my life I've found refuge in songs. Mm. And even in sad songs, actually. 
And so I just found myself um, going into this zone of writing that if I'm writing songs that have a certain soulfulness or sadness in them, I will want to balance that out by writing also some funny songs. But last year I found myself sort of staying with this flow and uh, ultimately really enjoying it. Now, Razan, that, of course, is a beautiful segue here because, of course, you, you do a lot of work with refugees, both here in Ireland, but also you're volunteering out in Greece. Yeah, exactly. It was 2015 because I was witnessing on social media and TV images and videos from my own people mm. 24 hours and I was helpless. I did not know what to do. And I, at the same time, I did not want to be only witnessing. I mean, at the same time, I'm, I am a weak in a way. I, I don't have really the money to help. I don't have the power as well. But what I ended up is just I have myself and I have my, my heart, my smile and my compassion and my honesty to them. And this is when I decided to go and volunteer in Coast Island in uh, Greece for maybe 10 days in 2015. And then I did as well in 2016. Hmm. It was turning point in my life. And I've never even imagined I would be a human rights activist or mm. really like helping with that. But this is something you never expect. You're actually there, you know, in Greece, you know, and then you're speaking to people who then it turns out are literally from your hometown. Exactly. So actually our mission was to wake up every day, two in the morning, and go and wait for refugees and waiting for them arriving by boats. And one of the days on one boat, many people arrived and getting out of the boat to the shore. And then I saw a person and somebody I personally knew. And he was interior designer. He designed maybe 10 a restaurants back home in my home, hometown, Latakia. And it was shocking to see him. And mm. he was the same. Like, I was like, no, it's impossible. It would, it would be you. He said, yeah, I mean, and, and then like we talked. And um, as I said, it's people from everywhere in Syria. And this is very important to note that the war didn't affect only one part of the yes. Syrians. Every religion, every ethnicity, and, and from every part of Syria, it was really devastating for everybody. Yeah. Well, so, I think one of the things is that we, because we see these pictures and they're talked about in papers, and, and we sort of put them all into this kind of blob, refugee. And we don't think that actually it's an interior designer and, uh, you know, and a mother and a... Yeah, I mean, I'd say that the international community and even the media, they just put label here on your chest mm -hmm. and you are a refugee. You can't change it. So yeah. as if they remove you from your identity, from your dreams, from your ambition, you became nothing, not a human being. You are only refugee. Mm. And if you try to change it, they will actually challenge you not to change it. You know, you are there, please stay there. Mm. That's really challenging from that whole international media uh, in media in general. Yeah, it's important to know that we are simply human beings. So I'm, I would always say stop dehumanizing us. And, and your parents are still in Syria. Um, that's a worry. Uh, yeah, exactly. So um, like I left 2011 until 2015. It was maybe four years I didn't see them. But finally, they made it to Ireland in 2015. And they stayed for one month, but they decided to go back home. Mm. And it was 
very um, sad experience because we did not want them to. And they had the chance to stay. They had the residency, but still they decided to go back. It's always worry because, I mean, if there is bad thing happened to them right now, I know I can't go. Yeah. And I know that they are very lonely. And when I talk to my mom, she would tell me, I feel I am orphan because all her kids are not around her. She's with my dad. They feel lonely, but still they want mm -hmm. to be there in their homeland. But people think, oh, it's easy to move from country to country. The move is so hard mm. and it's so hard to left behind your country, your homeland, your friends, your relatives. And you, and they actually, decided you intend to, to go back to Syria? Definitely. That's one of my biggest dreams, actually, especially like for next year to be able to rebuild my country and contribute and especially, especially helping women mm -hmm. and children because they were the most affected by the war. Mm -hmm. They were actually the real victim yeah. of this adult yeah. men war, you know. So they were really affected. That's why we, I really want to go back, do something for them I, and try. I might not succeed, I don't know, mm -hmm. but I have to try. Mm. Well, activism comes in all different shapes and sizes, so I want to come to you in a second. But let's have a little musical break first, Aoife. Okay. So, um, would you like to uh, um, uh, tell us what you're going to do? Yeah. And, and who's doing it with you? Andy. Uh, <laughs> Andy. Andy Meany uh, is here, and uh, it's a cover of a song that I'm going to do. I guess I, I have a bit of a story with this because it's a bit of a begin again. That's why I chose to sing this song, because mm -hmm. it's New Year's Day, and uh, for me, it was kind of my reset on life. I was working in a job in, in Dublin on Capel Street, which you know. And, uh, <laughs> I do know Capel <laughs> yes. Street, yes. <laughs> I was working from about uh, seven in the morning until 11 o'clock at night. And I had been building up a career and I was re really happy that I had built up this career. But for some reason, that during that time, I got really low and I had stopped singing. And I guess uh, singing for me is like breathing. It's another kind of different way of format of, of a language for me. And it's not that I lost my voice physically, I kind of lost it mentally and, and emotionally. And uh, I got very low and I got depressed. And I remember having a lunch break. I was walking down Capel Street and it was mid-June. And of course, it was uh, sideways rain hitting me in the face. And uh, I was heading toward the boardwalk to have my lunch. And I had brought these jam sandwiches in with me. And they jam were sandwiches. really miserable. Yeah. <laughs> You're definitely from the Liberty. <laughs> really miserable. So most days I like jam sandwiches, but these jam sandwiches had fallen to the bottom of my bag and were squished to an inch of their life. Oh. And uh, Andy here behind me, who's setting up the guitar, sent me this song and he said, you know what, this might cheer you up today. And I heard the first few bars of the song and all of a sudden something inside me switched and it changed everything for me in an instant. And I think that's the power of what music can do. And it really made me understand that. And the next morning I woke up and I didn't feel as sad. And it made me go, you know, I have to go back singing. And I think that's why I'm here singing for you today. So, and, and yeah. of course, the fact that it was Andy that sent it to you. It was Andy. Thinking and about, you know, you're how you are. He's and a very special, he's a very special man, I'll tell you that now. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Andy's the fella, right? He's he's Andy, the, the fella. Andy's the fella. I call him the fella on stage every night. Uh, I sing this song every time I do a gig. I can't not put it in because it changed my life. And... It has a bit of a chorus and I know we have an audience here, so I'm going to look at them and see <laughs> if they will sing with me because uh, it's a Bruce, Bruce Coburn song called Wondering Where the Lions Are. And uh, basically I sing Wondering Where the Lions Are and then the audience sings Wondering Where the Lions Are. So we have like half of the panellists are singers, so I'm going to ask them to sing, but I'm also going to ask them to sing as well over there. Yourself. I know I'm looking at you, but... And, and yeah. thousands of listeners around the country. Yes, I want everybody yes, yes. at home. Um, <laughs> as long as you're feeling a bit tired and a bit uh, maybe hungover from last night, this will cheer you up. 
Neve, I'm sometimes described as an activist, and I always say, no, I'm an accidental activist because it's not something I you sort of set out to do, and, and it's just something that happens. And um, in a way, I think of you that way too, because you are just doing your thing. <laughs> no, like, I, it's not something I ever really think about because I suppose growing up, I mean, yeah, I was a foot shorter than pretty much everybody else hmm. at all times in my life. And I didn't see any reason why I should be treated differently or why yeah. I couldn't do anything. It's it's due to my parents, really. I'd be a completely different person, I'd say, if they monocoddled me all yeah. the time. So it's only really since I've started training and kind of people start seeing me that people have been asking me about this type of thing. And I've always kind yeah. of said, like, in terms of kind of disability and equality and all that, we're all trying to get to a place where everything about everybody is pretty much ignored and everybody's yeah. treated the same. And we're just going to power on and carry yeah. on with our day. So people see the activism in a different way through me because yeah. I'm just showing people, why would you treat me different? Yeah. And so I want to rewind a little bit because the bloody discus. <laughs> like, you know, it's not, you know, I think most girls probably don't even really, aren't even exactly sure what the discus <laughs> is. And so, so you went to this thing and they basically said, you're a natural and said, would you like to start training at it? And, and what was your first reaction? I didn't know anything about discus, nor yeah. did I even know what it was, 100%. Yeah. And I think because I was so naive about it, I just thought, yeah, sure, go on. <laughs> we'll give it a go. And I was like, yeah, I can get a medal in Rio. Why not? Because I'd watched the Paralympics so many times. And you did get medal in Rio, which is like the most incredible oh, thing. It was like, yeah, if anybody knew how I was thinking, you know, right at the start, how confident I was knowing absolutely nothing, they would have thought I was crazy. But, you know, that, that naivety was good in a way because it, I didn't realise what I was about to do. So, I mean, yeah, my, my life today is 
worlds apart from what it could yeah. have been a few years ago. But I had this opportunity to just do something which I never thought I should even be allowed to do, I suppose. Yeah. And it's changed my life. Um, I mean, and of course, now your mum, Caroline, is here. Yeah. Um, and... <laughs> She was the one who sort of said, go for this thing in the in the beginning, was it? And sort of drove you to the... She, I mean, she wasn't pushing me because she, yeah, she knew me well enough at that stage. Don't try and push me into anything because I will dig my heels in so hard. <laughs> um, so it was kind of left up to me. And because you, you were talking about like moving around. I moved around a lot as a child. I was in Ireland until I was eight. And then we moved to England for a year. Mm. And then we moved to France. And I was in France for six and a half years. And then I, my parents kind of divorced over in the country and all that. And that's fine. But mm. I... My dad moved back to Ireland first and then I, a year or two later, ended up coming back on my own, back to him. You've had to begin again lots of times. Many times. times. Well, we're, we're, we're sort of throwing this out as if it's like, you know, <laughs> as if it wasn't your personality type. Of course, it is your personality type because, you know, nobody forced you into skydiving. No. You know, <laughs> uh, what's that about? <laughs> like, why does somebody want to throw themselves out of an airplane? Well, I always wanted to. And when I joined GCC, I was only 17, so I was very young. And I was like, oh, I'll get involved in like the clubs and societies. And trampolining and skydiving just kind of popped out as being slightly different. Your poor mammy, like, who, who has, has this little door and think, oh, she's a little person, I better look after her and cover in cotton wool. And then no. you're throwing yourself out of airplanes, throwing the bleeding discus. It's, no, like, the, the skydiving, yeah, it was before discus and it's it's changed me as a person because I have friends there that are from every walk of life, you know, they might have a nice car, they might have a crappy car. It's been a really big thing in my life because I got a lot more confident in myself because, to be honest, like, when you jump out of a plane... Once you've done that, like making like a, a bad phone call to someone just doesn't seem that big a deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 if I was going to use my terrible pop psychology on you, I would say there's something about throwing yourself out of an airplane. You know, is it in some way that once you're falling out of the sky, it doesn't matter what size you are or... Yeah, uh, exactly. It, like, it, and it's because it's a big escape for me because when you're jumping and, you know, you're pulling your parachute in about 20 seconds, you're not thinking like, you know, I think I need milk. You know, like yeah. <laughs> nothing downstairs is relevant. You're completely in the moment. You forget about everything else. Yeah. You're really plummeting towards the <laughs> yeah. earth at an accelerating yeah. rate. It's just like every minute. Basics, doesn't it? I could not do yeah. it. Do, do, do you have a smaller parachute? Yeah, no, it's slightly smaller than someone of my experience would usually have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and but just, um, you're only 24 still. Yeah. And the Tokyo Olympics is... It's 2020. It'll be on. So is, is that the, the next big... Yeah, it is. I mean, it's something I can only really plan here at a time. And I don't like to plan too far in advance because I just don't think it's possible sometimes. Like mm. even with my life now, if I tried to plan this, it probably wouldn't have worked out. Yeah. Whereas kind of winging it, so it kind of worked quite mm. well. And um, we'll, we'll actually now see, Steve, you, you know, have segued back to your first true love acting over the last few years in a big way. Yeah. You're in quite a few various TV series um, on Klondike and, and all sorts. Yeah. But, but what's the Chet Baker movie you're doing? I did a film last year. I auditioned for the role. It's a Dutch film about the jazz musician Chet Baker. Yeah. An American jazz musician and he was, you know, a big, huge star, like especially in the late 50s and all that. Mm. But then he developed a really chronic heroin yeah. addiction and basically that sort of took over his life and he ended up basing himself in Amsterdam, easy access to drugs mm. in the late 80s. And uh, he fell out or jumped, no one's quite sure, out of a hotel room window and basically died on the, the path in the centre of Amsterdam. And, uh, it's all about his last period. Yeah, it's all just, it's not like a biopic or okay. anything. And um, 
So there's a sort of a parallel story in the film of this uh, detective that knew nothing about him. He thought he was just a junkie that was found dead on the street. And as he's going around the underworld of Amsterdam in that yeah. time, he's discovering this whole world that Chet Baker moved in. And he's also, the detective is discovering things about himself. So there's questions come up in the film about like, why when you're so uniquely talented and all, would you throw it all away for for drugs and um facially you're a great fit for that well people when they see the movie actually won't recognize me because mm. there was two hours uh, sitting in a chair for uh, prosthetics trying to make you look you know more more haggard yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, look at you you mentioned earlier in passing that there was a time when you found solace in booze i mean i was kind of blessed at a certain point in in, in my late 20s I could just see that it was pretty clear the direction that I was going in. And it was a moment of realisation that if I wanted to pursue this world of singing and playing my songs and getting out into the world and singing for people, I'd have to let go of this. Mm. And, and I did. Well, and but I'm I really think it's a scary thing for entertainers. Yeah, and it is. Partly because we're so often you know, working in places where there's booze and everything around, but also because... I mean, and I, I, I do, I'm guilty of it myself. You think, I'll have the gin and tonic before I go out. And it's a terrible thing to say, but I believe that I'm a little better if, I, if I've had the gin and tonic before I walk out. I mean, I was talking to a very dear friend of mine who, he's about 78 now, and all the years that I've known him, I've always known him as a drinker. And uh, I've never seen him become obnoxious. I've never seen him become a complete pain in the ass. I've mm. never seen him suffer desperately with hangovers. Mm. And I really admire people who are like that. I'm just not yeah. one of them. Yeah, I'm really happy I don't drink. I'm really happy that I don't need to. Yeah. Because Eva, in your family, there's also, you know... Yeah, my mum was an alcoholic or is an alcoholic, whatever way you want to go. And she has uh, started up her own foundation for uh, helping family members of, of people who are mm. in addiction. But I guess I'm very but aware... It's, it's called... Right, the Rise Foundation. The Rise Foundation. But uh, I guess I'm very aware of the demon drink, you know, and mm. I still drink and I'm the only one in my family that does. But I don't drink before going on stage. I'm the opposite of you. Because I feel like the nerves that I have, which I get still very nervous before mm. going on stage. If I'm not nervous, then it's not going to be a good gig. If you're drinking, it dumbs down that nerves yeah. and you, you perform better on that adrenaline, I, f I find. Mm. And the false confidence that it gives you is, is great. <laughs> but um, it doesn't make you feel grateful for being where you are. I think drink takes away your gratitude for life because it is a fake confidence. And like, gratitude is the main thing for me in every element. And that's why I wonder where the lines are. That song is real important to me because it's it's a gratitude thing that I have. And now when I come home to Ireland, I find that I don't drink in any way yeah. as much as when I'm on tour because touring is the is the where you really could actually lose yourself altogether. But yeah. Um, well, I'm in my defence. It's just one gin and tonic. But, <laughs> yeah, but, but I also like as it has become a kind of a ritual with me and, you know, Philip, who directs my shows and all that, and yeah. he with me. There's a certain point in my makeup routine where he makes me the gin and tonic. Cool. And it sort of, it sets the, right, we're getting started soon. You know, it's... Yeah, well, that's the ritual. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's okay because you're not going to have another three before you go on stage. No, Whereas no, I think no, no, no. there's there's a definitely a thing about musicians is that you might get one and then that one doesn't work anymore. And then you have to have a second right. one and then you have to have a third one and then you're locked on on stage and we always had a bottle of tequila on our rider you know throughout <laughs> yeah, all the late 80s day. and and then so there was this you know it was just that shot you know before it was yeah. like you yeah. know the musketeers you know one for all yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know when we march out on the stage and then the one wasn't it and then and we were pretty much found like we we're coming back and the bottle was gone you know but you'd laugh you saw my kitchen because on my rider there's a bottle of gin and I have one gin before the show. And then sometimes, depending where we are, we might, the two of us have a gin afterwards. So that's three gins out of the bottle. 
but I don't ever want to just leave, leave these it. random yeah. bottles of gin lying in random dressing rooms around the country Fantastic. or whatever. So I always shove it in the bag. And then so uh, if you open one of my cupboards at home, there's these bottles and bottles of gin with a bit, you know, a turd down from the top. People must occasionally open my thing and, oh, my God, she's a terrible alcoholic. You know, and close the door and never mention it to me. Now, of course, Razan, um, you come from a country where really they're not big drinkers. Was that something... Yeah, it's uh, exactly. Not big drinkers, but it is in the culture. Yeah. But not that big. Yeah. Our culture maybe will be based on food and actually shisha. Yeah, I'm not sure yes, if you yes. know, familiar with shisha, it's the, the big hubbly bubbly, <laughs> exactly, with the yeah. flavored tobacco. So this is mainly, like, uh, uh, drinking will be mainly New Year's Eve, wedding parties, engagement parties. So this is where... Here, when I came to Ireland, I was a little bit shocked. <laughs> Things are a lot based on drinking. Yes, you know, yeah. every night out is based on drinking. To be honest, I'm getting <laughs> now to yeah. there. And when I came, uh, we used to go out with friends, like Irish friends and even international from the universities. And I like seeing everybody having shots. Yeah, I'll try to have shots shots and I ended up one of the days maybe nine, ten tequila shots and I was still sober. <laughs> that was so shocking for me, you know, because I'm not used well, to it. you thought you were still sober, but everyone else is seeing this <laughs> mess. <laughs> and of course, Nani, you're from Cork, so you don't drink at all. Um, but actually, uh, is your body a temple? Um, I mean, you're, you're an Olympian. <laughs> I like things so much. I don't know if everybody agrees. Um, no, like I, I do have to kind of be, be somewhat wary about what I eat and what I drink. And I mean, yeah. is that in case they turn up and to do a random sample test like, or something? Not, <laughs> not even joking. My first test ever was in when I just moved in in Dublin last year, and like it was when it was really, really lovely weather. And I just happened to buy like a six pack of Bud. And like I had like three one of the days and like I wasn't training the next day. I wasn't, you know, going too bad. But uh, sure, seven o'clock the next morning, I get a knock on the door anyway. And I'd only just moved into this place and I wasn't sure where to put the bottles. So they were just next to my bed. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, I have to go up to get my passport for the drug test and all that. And your one's there and she's just kind of looking. And I was like... It's not going to affect the test, is it? <laughs> Brilliant. Well, they don't test for alcohol. No. Right? <laughs> no. So, yeah, that was a bit embarrassing. But no, like, I, I wouldn't be a big drinker because I do try and uh, look after myself. I mean, seven sessions a week currently training. So um, mm, wow. you kind of don't want to be bold then because you're, all your hard work is just going to go to waste. Mm. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap things up. Um, but Luca, I, I think um, we're going to come to you for that. Poor Luca is battling through a heavy cold. I know he is. Like, like, really, he's like uh, a warrior he's there. He's there with a tissue to his nose the yeah, whole time yeah. during everything. Yeah. <laughs> yes, tell us a little about it before you, before you do it, Luca. I just think this is a song you can sing any time. I've sung this song at a wedding. I've sung this song at a funeral. I've sung this song at happy occasions, sad occasions. I'll give it a go. Thank you. See how we do. I'll walk beside you through the world tonight Beneath the starry skies ablaze with light Within your soul love's tender words I'll hide I'll walk beside you through the eventide I'll walk beside you through the passing years Through days of cloud and sunshine 
joys and tears. And when the great call comes, the sunset gleams. I'll walk beside you to the land of dreams. And that is it for our first Pantasocracy gathering of 2018. Thank you to all my guests. Steve Wall, Razan Ibrahim, Aoife Scott, uh, Neve McCarthy, and of course, Luca Bloom. And um, thanks to our audience uh, for being here today with us in the parlour and to everybody at home listening on this first day of the year. Catch up online on pantasocracy.ie or rte.ie where there's even some video evidence of how ravishing we are and the musical performances will be there as well. That's it from us. Uh, wishing everybody a happy and pantasocratic new year. Woo! 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 Woo!